All right, well, what we're talking about is, uh, in this class, is, is the eternal purpose, um, the eternal purpose of God, and I'm not going to be able to bring you totally up to speed to where we are with everything, but um, we've, in, in a one-minute version, we've kind of looked at the eternal purpose of God as His desire to have a a corporate, I called it a corporate thing because it's called a people, it's called a kingdom, it's called a land, it's called a, uh, a church, it's called a bride, it's called, all, there's lots of different pictures and, and, and names for it all throughout the Old Testament and, and, and the shadows and, and types and shadows in the Old Testament that point to this reality. But in a nutshell, it's this corporate body that receives uh, the life of God. God gives His life. Gives you could call that giving His love because the love of God is far more than just an emotion. It's the actual giving of Himself. It's the pouring out of Himself. And uh, and and the purpose of giving Himself is that this corporate body, morning, would become a. Um, a vessel of his own glory. So, in the first few weeks, we, we kind of were dealing with a diagram. I kind of had the Lord coming down and and offering Himself, and I had it with this arrow. I had the word love, and then with another arrow going back up to the Father, uh, glory. And uh, and then we looked at uh, you know, like I said, I think that I think the whole reality of the Bride of Christ is this is this reception of life unto glory and increase. I think that's the kingdom of God. I think that that's the, um, the land that receives the seed and becomes the, 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 the ground for that increase. Good morning. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, we've kind of just we, we've looked at that and we looked at Israel um, as this corporate body, this picture of God's... Before God took them out of Egypt, God said, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. And God began to deal with Israel as a, as a corporate picture of this... Uh, this well, the, the Israel, my son, the body of Christ. And, and, and we looked last time at... Um, how this is a, this is a, my drawing of Israel, my son. It has um, it has various pieces to it, and it has boundaries to it. But what if you st- if you stood back and looked at Israel from God's perspective, what you would see is the corporate body of Christ in types and shadows. You wouldn't see just a bunch of Jewish people. You wouldn't see just a bunch of uh, Believers in Yahweh, what you would, if you were to see it from God's perspective, you would see a. Of course, Christ is the life of it. Christ, you know, of course, we're talking about types and shadows here in the old covenant. But Christ, in every conceivable way, was the he was the sacrifices, the offerings, the feasts, the manna that fell from heaven, the brazen serpent on top, the staff that gave life to those who were bitten by the snake. He was all of the pictures that God was showing Israel in in this corporate body. But um, uh, they, well, most of them did not want to come to share God's view. Um, but God continued to deal with them according to His view and and was revealing in in Israel... I mean, I could draw a bunch of little guys in here if it helps you remember that I'm talking about corporate body. 
Um, but God was dealing in Israel with these people according to the reality of this one corporate body. And, and he started to give them right away in, in, um, uh, in the wilderness, started to give them pictures of what it means to relate to God in his son. And so right away we see Christ presented as manna. Uh, and Jesus himself says that he's the bread, he's the fulfillment of that picture. We see Jesus uh, presented as water coming out of a rock. Uh, Paul says, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, that that's a picture of Christ. That that water, that we continue to drink from that spiritual rock, uh, the water of which is Christ. Um, we see uh, Christ shown to us in the covenant that they, are, they, have, they established there in Exodus 19 and then on in 24. We're at the base of the mountain where there's blood sprinkled over them and the boundaries of that mountain, which are like the, the, the mountain of God, is, is completely um, sealed off from all flesh. And uh, Morning, Doc. And, and yet, after sprinkling with the blood, and, and uh, th- then they're invited to go up into that mountain and... and Israel represented in the elders, they go up into the mountain. And then, and then it goes into far more detail with the tabernacle and, and the priest, the, the high priest, and, uh, and all the pictures of the, the veil and the ark and, the, and the, the, the brazen altar and all the death that happens there at that altar and, and, and the cleansing that happens at the laver and all that stuff. What is it? How do you understand it? It's just... And this is like seriously, in my opinion, the most important thing to understand about the Old Testament. God was painting a picture, not just of Jesus the Nazarene, Jesus the man who came and died. Because most people, when they look for types and shadows, look for types and shadows of the man that lived for 33 years and then died. The, 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 the lion's share of the types and shadows are not about, uh, sometimes I've said it like this, they're not about the caterpillar, they're about the butterfly. They're not about the Jesus the Nazarene, the, the man who came to die and to bear himself the, the judgment of the world. They are of Jesus the resurrection. Not two Jesuses, but Jesus in the form where he is our resurrection and our life and our light and our righteousness and all the things that he, as the head, is made unto his body. So all of these pictures, these types and shadows that... that that fill up the Old Testament are morning. Uh, they are pictures of Christ in His relationship with a corporate vessel that has been joined to Him. And then, so when you're reading about the law, this is kind of still a review, but it's it's seriously the most it's the most fundamental, important thing I think you could say about the Old Testament. When you're reading about the law, you're reading about the boundaries of Christ. You're not reading about just a bunch of um, rules for proper behavior. You're reading about the things which which God requires because they are pictures of Christ. And you're reading about the things that God forbids because they're contrary to Christ. So you're not allowed to kill and steal and commit adultery and la la la. Of it, whatever these things are contrary to the nature of Christ, they belong to this realm of death that's outside of Christ, and you are required, uh, and, and under the old covenant, you are required to actually do this yourself, which they could never do, and so the law became a ministry of condemnation. Paul talks about that, but they were still required to walk in some 
form of an external picture, uh, shadow of this spiritual reality of being in Christ. And as long as they stayed, as long as they would abide in Christ, in all of these pictures of feasts and, and sacrifices and offerings and different ways of, of relating to one another and relating to God, as long as they would stay within the boundaries of Christ, abiding in Christ, they would always experience life and blessing and increase and victory and all these things that were part of this uh, this covenant. So, we, we talked about last time that the, the priesthood is, when we think about the priesthood, we usually just think, if we even think about the priesthood, which is pretty rare, I think, um, we usually think of just a bunch of rules and a bunch of strange uh, requirements and details that are somewhat gross. Um, some of them are quite gross. And 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 we don't, we kind of skip through, the, if we even read those parts of the Bible, it's usually we read them out of obligation, feeling like we need to cover the whole thing or whatever. Or maybe to study, well, I don't know, I don't know why we do it. But 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 it's generally not for the reason that all of these things, like Jesus said, testify of me. These are they which testify of me. Or, as he says in Luke 24, beginning with the law and the prophets and the Psalms, Jesus began to show them all the things testifying of him. And they testify of him in a way that becomes extremely important to us. The priesthood defines the relationship that God has given us in his Son. That's what it does. The priesthood isn't just Whatever you might have thought, you know, whatever the natural mind conjures up, I could give a list of, of different things. But the priesthood, if you if you if you're gonna want to turn to a spot in the Bible where God is describing what it means to have a relationship with Him in His Son, the place to go isn't the Gospels, and the place to go isn't really the epistles either. Although the epistles do describe our relationship with Christ, what the epistles are doing more than anything else is gathering up the things that were written back here and saying these are now true in Christ. So they're not really teaching things that are totally new and unheard of. They're saying, remember this veil back there in, in the Old Covenant? Christ, that was Christ. Remember this ark in the presence of God? That was Christ. Remember the the, 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 the temple of God? That was Christ. You remember, in, 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 they just start, and that's what Jesus said too. I'm this, I'm that, I'm, you know, I'm the bread, I'm the, I'm the, the shepherd, I'm the, uh, uh, I am the teacher, I am the vine, I am the, what else, wine, I, I am all of these things. You know, he, he, he declared himself to be the living fulfillment and definition of all these things. So, when we look at the priesthood, we're, we're looking at a God-given, written out, and lived out, it's like a, a 3D uh, live illustration in natural things, of course, in natural fires, in natural animals, in natural altars and sacrifices, in natural things, but, but, but natural things that were a perpetual uh, proclamation, illustration, demonstration of the reality of being in Christ and relating to God according to Jesus Christ. Experiencing, let me put it this way, experiencing Jesus Christ as our relationship to His Father, to our Father, to His God, to our God. That's just what Jesus said when He rose from the dead. Go tell, remember He said to um, 
Mary and Martha, go tell the disciples that I ascend to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. He, he had brought them into this relationship that he had with his Father, which was formerly exclusive to him. Um, so, the, the, the laws of having to do with the priesthood, not just the, the priest himself, but the priesthood, the laws having to do with that are the pictures of the nature of our relationship. And, and as I have said before, we don't usually even think about the fact that our relationship with God has a very specific nature to it, a kind. It has boundaries. It has things that are part of it and things that aren't part of it. We usually just invent in our mind whatever it means to have a relationship with God. We say, okay, I'm a Christian now, and and maybe we get a few verses to back up our ideas, but the main portion of what we think relating to God is is something we read in a book somewhere or or something our pastor told us. And more often than not, it's just a bunch of our own thoughts about what God wants, what God doesn't want, what he likes, what he's mad about, um, how I can make up for this, and how, you know, all these different things that just enter our heads. And and yet there is a, there is a God-given description of of what it means to to be in Christ to please God in Christ to receive God through Christ to be changed and transformed and purified by Christ these things have been given to us and and we need to obviously it's not a matter of decoding the bible it's a matter of the spirit of god making god's view the spirit of truth making the things that are real to him the realities that are working in our hearts you know, bringing his view making it become our view, our living experience. Okay, so today, uh, in the time that we have left, I wanted to look at some of those functions of the priesthood that define how God sees our relationship to Him. Uh, One of those is... Well, one of those is worship. And I hesitate even to say that word because it has so much stuff attached to it in our minds. Um, as soon as I say worship, usually the first thing that pops in someone's head is singing or dancing, maybe. Or, I mean, there's various other forms uh, of what we call worship, but that's not, what I'm, that's not what I'm talking about. Worship is a great word, and it's a very commonly used word in the scriptures, but um, as with everything else, I kind of always want to encourage us to kind of back off our preconceived notions and experiences of what we think we know, and um, and look at let's look at what God showed us in, in in Scripture about what worship is, and then we can then we can let Him become the the defining of of these words in our hearts. Worship has been fulfilled. The worship of the old covenant has been fulfilled in Christ. What does that mean? Now we 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 can we can say, I think with a little bit of understanding, the sacrifice of bulls and goats has been fulfilled in Christ, and we, we okay, that makes a little bit of sense because why? Because we see him to be the reality of it that the bulls and the goats were pointing to, right? Uh, we could say the temple has been fulfilled in Christ. Why? Because it used to be a natural 
building filled with smoke and things that represented God's interactions with the believers, like like candles and 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 showbread. And but but now, Christ said, "Destroy this temple, and I'll build it up in three days." And it says He was talking about His body. And now we're in Him, and we, He's in us, and we become this temple in Him, or He's the temple, and whatever. It's this it's this joining together, uh, a dwelling place of God and the Spirit. And it, we can we can say, okay, well that makes sense. The temple has been. Uh, fulfilled in Christ. Now, if we had any, uh, if we had any real desire to be honest with ourselves, we could keep going with those things because it's not just certain aspects of the old covenant that are fulfilled in Christ, and others aren't. You know, if we wanted to, we could say tithing has been fulfilled in Christ because it has. It's not a. You know, I've heard. I've actually heard a pastor one time say it's a. It's a. Uh, it's the one thing that made it through the cross to the other side. And, uh, and that's interesting. I wonder why he said that. But um, there's all kinds of motivations for us not seeing things fulfilled in Christ. A very gifted musician. Um, and again, I'll, let me just jump ahead and say I'm not against music or songs in church. That's not where I'm going with this. But... A very gifted musician would not want to talk about the ways that worship has been has been fulfilled in Christ, because worship's well, it might be how this person gets gains a living. It might be something they singing songs is something they really enjoy. They they may very much for several reasons like calling singing worship, and and so wherever, but no one wants to bring a bull to church and kill it. And clean off the kidneys and the lobe of the liver and put them on top of, you know, the altar and burn it. No one wants, and then drag the carcass out in the parking lot. Nobody wants to do that. And so we, we're happy to say the sacrifices have been fulfilled in Christ. Thank God, you know. And whatever part of the of the old covenant we 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 don't particularly want to do, it's great to say, well, we're in the new covenant now. Well, what's the new covenant? It's the fulfillment of the old. It's not the elimination. Jesus was very plain in saying that. It's not the elimination of the old. In other words, God never changed his mind. He fulfilled his mind by bringing in the substance of those pictures. Okay? So, he didn't actually take away circumcision. It now has nothing to do with your body. But it's Paul second or Colossians two eleven. It is the circumcision made without hands, the removal of the entire body of Adam, the entire body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. He didn't remove circumcision; he fulfilled circumcision. He didn't remove the law. He didn't remove these things that he painted. He he he, he removed the natural form of them, but he fulfilled them in spirit and truth. And so he brought these things into a a spiritual fulfillment. And if you want to, my my short definition of fulfillment is I, you can say it, it's the arrival of the substance or, or sometimes well let me say, say it this way it's the arrival of the substance that always implies a change in nature and place the change in nature is a change from the natural to the spiritual and a change in place is a change from the external to the Internal, and we could go through everything that Jesus. What you know, he says the kingdom of God is not of this world. Ooh, that means it's spiritual. It's also in you. You know, John or Luke seventeen twenty one. The kingdom of God. Don't look around for it. 
You're not going to see it because it's in you. And uh, and and you could we we could go right on down the list with um, with all of these. What's the law? The law of the letter is now the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus that works in you. What is well? I'm going to have a bunch here listed on, on worship, but the and I also have ministry and and. and um, these are the three things that I'm going to talk about is what is worship, what is ministry, and what is purification. Because I think you can kind of put, I mean, there's a lot of chapters in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers that talk about the priesthood. But I think you can kind of put all of those long, detailed chapters into three categories that talk about, basically, what is Christ doing in you? If you want to just simplify it as, as basic as you can get it, what is Christ doing in you? Well, someone says, well, he's just telling me, you know, uh, where the good parking spots are. And and uh, I'm, he's there to thank him when I, um, I don't know, my stocks go up or something. That's not really why he's there. He's there to produce, to to establish in your soul something that is received by his father. And that's all, that's menace. I mean, that's worship. You could say it's ministry too. Ministry going in this direction. He's there so that you can offer his increase and reality to other members of his body. That's that's another reason why he's there. And that's called ministry. Not defined by what you do, but by the life that's working in you in all that you do. And then he's... He's in you to transform you into His very image. And that's purification or transformation or sanctification. I mean, you could call it a lot, a lot of different words kind of fall under these umbrellas. These are just real general umbrellas. But if you were going to ask the question, what in the world, you know, every Christian, I think, would say, would agree with the fact that Jesus is in, I mean, every Christian that's really a Christian would would say, yeah, Christ is in me. But if you ask them, what what's he doing there? And they would say, well, he's living there. Is it like a vacation house where he just goes and visits once in a while? I mean, what what, what is he? But what's why why did God? I mean, God had to have had a reason to put His eternal Word, His eternal Son, into your soul. What's that reason? And everyone says, I don't know. I'm just glad he's there. Well, that's great that you're glad he's there, and and and, and I'm glad he's there too. But we have like thousands of pages of descriptions of why he's there and what he's supposed to be doing there. And I think as far and this is probably very a very puny understanding of this, but it's what I have right now. Um, I feel like he's there to offer to, to to worship his father in and through you. I think he's there. To minister to his own body in and through you. I think he's there to transform your soul. I think he's there to eliminate from you everything that comes from the flesh and cause you <clears throat> to be a, a vessel of honor that actually bears the image of its contents, bears the likeness. Uh, removing, and this is this is getting into Leviticus a little bit here, and I'm not going to go into any of these things in, ter- in, in great detail in this class, in some other classes maybe, but 
the, the, the Levitical, the, all those chapters about sores and leprosy and funguses and things that come from the flesh and spread in the flesh. He's getting those things out of the camp, getting them out of Israel, removing them from his presence, cleansing the believer and bringing them back into the camp. You know, or in some cases, taking the taking the believer, depending on the situation, taking the believer out and killing him because there is no remedy for 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 a heart that will not walk that refuses to walk in covenant. So, okay, that was a little more than I thought I was going to say. It's kind of an introduction of that, but worship. Um. Well, well, let's. Let's let's read John four because we don't again you don't you don't have to like guess about worship finding a new nature and place. You can just read Jesus, and he'll tell you that worship used to be external, having to do with this city or that city, having to do with this place or that place, having to do with certain things that are done and things that represented. Um, spiritual realities, and 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 now it has to do with the very spirit and truth of the matter. In John four, Jesus is talking to the Samaritan, and he says, "Let's see, where did I? Um, I didn't write down the verse. Let's see. Um, let's start in verse nineteen. You, you, you probably all know the story. The woman says, "Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet, and so I'm going to ask you." One of the most, uh, you know, common theological questions of the day is basically what what she's getting at here. Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our, fa- our fathers, the Samaritan fathers, worshipped at this mountain. But you people, you Jews, say that in Jerusalem, that's where men ought to worship. And Jesus says to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem... Will you worship the Father? In other words, an hour is coming where it doesn't matter where you are. And all the Jewish minds who could have heard that would have said, what are you talking about? It was only ever supposed to be in the place, Jerusalem, that you established your name. That's what you said all throughout Deuteronomy when you're telling them about going in the land. The only place to to offer sacrifice. Don't you dare make another... That's what the high places were for the most part. There were other places where people were trying to worship God outside of Jerusalem. Some of them ended up being pagan things, but for a while they were they were they were you know according to the aspects of the law, but they weren't in the right place. Um, in fact, there's a, there's a there's a scripture in Leviticus, or maybe it's Numbers, where it says if any man is offering um, uh, an, an offering to me that is not brought to my altar, he is to be cut off from Israel. It had to be brought to a very specific place. It had to be brought to a very specific city. Three times a year, all of your males will appear before me, says the Lord. And the three major feasts. And, and they all need to do that right there in Jerusalem. because that's Anyway, Jesus is he's flushing that entire thing. Not flushing it in the way of getting rid of the substance of it. But he's flushing the pictures of it because he's bringing the reality of it into place. So he's saying, 
an hour is coming where it doesn't matter whether it's this mountain or Jerusalem that you will worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. Speaking of the Jews, for salvation is from the Jews. In other words, all the types and shadows are from the Jews. All the pictures are from the Jews. The sacrifices and the offerings and the altars and the arks and all that stuff, that's from the Jews. We, God has made those things known to us. You just worship your own imaginations, but nevertheless, 23, an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Well, what does it mean that we must now worship God in spirit and truth? Um... I used to, th- well, I, I, I suppose there's, there's all, just like everything else, there's all kinds of, um, I remember when I, when I came out of the Presbyterian church and got involved in the charismatic church, worshiping in spirit and truth just meant um, putting my hands up and singing real loud and having the freedom to maybe, you know, do the charismatic two-step from time to time, and because uh, that was worshiping in spirit and truth. Well... That's not it. I mean, there's nothing wrong with the charismatic two-step. Um, if you're good at it. And I was. But um, it, 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 the, the worshiping in spirit and truth means that it is no... Spirit means it is no longer natural... No longer physical, no longer material, physical representations of. No longer had to do with going to a specific place, bringing a specific thing, killing that thing in a way that represents Christ. Spirit had to do with another nature, and truth has to do with the coming of the the substance of the thing, and not the picture of it. It's the actual reality. It's in the different realm and it's the completion of, of all the all the shadows. It's it's spirit. It's no longer type and shadow. It's spirit and truth. And so what was the fulfillment of worship? Well, to answer that question, we have to ask what the shadow of worship was. What's the shadow of worship? What, what did God what did God show us worship to be in the Old Covenant? Well, again, every uh, Christian, the first thing that pops in their head is songs, singing, maybe dancing, maybe art. Me, actually, it's interesting because music actually is only was only one small part of what worship was in the Old Testament. And... Um, and, and it wasn't even part of what worship meant for a long... I mean, the, the, the songs came with David um, a long time after God established worship with Moses, what worship, how he defined worship with Moses. It wasn't until hundreds of years later, 500 years later, that David started putting, the, you know, according to the, to the mind of the Lord as well, but started putting the Levitical singers around the, the tabernacle of David and having, having them sing the psalms which uh, he was, he and others were getting from from the Spirit of God. But so, if we go back before that, and what was what was the part of the pattern of what worship was, what God was receiving um, for hundreds of years, it didn't even involve singing for a long time. It involved um, 
it involved a whole bunch of pictures of Christ rising up to his father. It involved Christ. It didn't involve a bunch of men doing whatever they thought God might like. Because the fact of the matter is, God was killing people for that back then. <laughs> if people had an imagination about what God might like, if, if the sons of Aaron even didn't bring the right fire that came from the brazen altar to burn their incense, if they, made, if they brought fire in from another source, then God just immediately fried them. If the sons of Korah thought that they could do their own kind of, of priestly ministry that wasn't according to the very strict pattern that God gave them, God opened up the ground and swallowed them. So it, worship wasn't a matter of everyone do whatever you think God likes because that's where the golden calf came from. And, and that should, at the very least, strike us as interesting right now in the New Covenant because... Because God was interested in a very specific pattern. Why was he interested in that pattern? And that's what God said to Moses seven times, I think it's in the book of Exodus. Be careful that you do this exactly according to the pattern that I showed you on the mountain. What's the pattern? The, the pattern is Christ. It's the, it's the pictures of Christ. It's the various aspects of the person and work of Christ. And anything outside of that is not what God was receiving as worship. Anything that was added to that was considered a big tumor. It's a gross little hair. A big tumor on the body of Christ that he would immediately send his priests to cut off. Or he would just... You know, send fire down from heaven and cut it off. But whatever it was, it wasn't recognized by him as Christ all and in all, and it was taken away. So he would start to he he wanted a certain fragrance, for instance, from the from the anointing oil. But he said, "Don't anyone in this camp ever put this same ingredient, these ingredients together." You remember when he says this? No one is allowed to make this recipe because it represents. Christ. I mean, he didn't say the part about representing Christ, but he said it's very. It's only. It's a holy oil and it has a very particular fragrance and that fragrance. And he says, by the way, if you ever put this fragrance on flesh, that person is cut off from Israel. If anyone tries to put this fragrance on their flesh, they're cut off from Israel. What in the world? Why so strict? Why, why the intensity? Because the pattern was not just some random collection of rules that God liked. The pattern was the person of Jesus Christ in whom, and only in whom, God could be experienced and related to. And only the fragrance of Jesus Christ, only the, that smell which he created to represent Christ, only that offering, that death, that burning of, of fat, that, that feast, that waving of the shoulder of the ram, or only those very specific things which, which, for, her, which for him were pictures of his son, only those things were accepted. Only that be very careful that you do all things according to the pattern of my son. Okay? So, if we're trying to define worship, then we have to notice that it, the issue in the Old Covenant wasn't whether they had a good idea. 
It wasn't whether their heart was in it, because, you know, we say that all the time today. You know, just do whatever you want for Jesus as long as your heart's in it. That wasn't the issue. The, the issue wasn't dedication, because there was a lot of people dedicated to things that were not according to the pattern. I mean, there, there was all kinds of... Later on in Israel's history, there were, there were priests dedicated to Baal that were cutting themselves, you know, and all kinds of crazy stuff for their dedication to him. No, it wasn't dedication. It was something very specific in which God would relate and, and from which God would receive those things which were the, 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 the rising up to Him, to His nostrils, the, the pleasant fragrance going up into His nostrils. Remember how it says, when He received the things that represented Christ to Him, they were the, they were the fragrance of Christ unto Him. Now Paul's going to grab that same language and bring it into the New Testament in a number of places, which I maybe won't get to today, I don't know, but, but uh, there's a bunch of them. There's a bunch of places where Paul talks about the fragrance of Christ in us. God giving His Son to us as a pleasant, fragrant aroma. Or, or, or that we diffuse the fragrance of Christ unto the Father and unto the world. To some it's a fragrance of death. They don't like the fragrance. To others it's a fragrance of life. But either way, unto God it is the fragrance of Christ. You know, and so Paul grabs, and, and Peter too, uh, in, in another verse, that... Uh, grabs grabs uh, that language of, of what worship really was and says that that's what needs to be taking place in us now. So, in, when, when God purchased the people for himself, in fact, right when he's talking to Moses, he says, Moses, go tell Pharaoh, Israel is my son, and to let my son, son go so that they might come out three days, remember that whole three days, death, burial, resurrection, and worship me. And, and Pharaoh actually says at one point, why don't you just worship your God here? And Moses says, that's an abomination. My God can't be worshipped here. He can't be worshipped in this land. In fact, what we would do to worship our God would be an abomination to the Egyptians. It's not, the two things do not, Egypt and worship don't mix. You have to come out of that man, come out of that death, come out of that land. You have to be brought out of sin and death. You have to be, be, be translated out of Adam into Christ before worship can even be a possibility. You, ha- you can't even start worship until you're out of Egypt. I have to go three days. Three days, death, burial, resurrection, the three days of the cross. You have to go out three days before, before worship can even start to be a reality. And it just so happens that, that, that the, at, at the end of those three days, Egypt didn't even exist in the mind of God. I mean, it existed as a nation, but God had cut it off so thoroughly, killing the firstborn, drowning Pharaoh in his sea, closing up the sea, and, and saying to Israel, from now on, you'll never see Egypt again as long as you live, never. You know, Exodus 14, 13 or 12, somewhere right in there. So, um, I, guess, I guess the main thing that I want us to understand today, and this may be as far as we get, but is that every aspect of what worship was in the Old Covenant had to be a God-given picture or a God-designed representation of Christ. In other words, let me say it like this. The burnt offering 
had zero relevance or importance in itself. None. It was only valid and relevant as a picture of Jesus Christ. God doesn't like burning cows. He doesn't, that's not something that is inherently pleasant to him. There was nothing about, in fact, he says in the prophets a number of times, I hate it. I hate that stuff. Why, and why did you tell us to do it then? There's only one thing I liked about burning cows. The measure to which it painted a physical, natural, old covenant picture of something my son is and would become unto you. That's the only reason. You know, someone says, no, God likes incense. No, God, God doesn't care about incense. He's never the only, again, God likes, he just loves, he's always liked it for some reason. When you pick up a, the shoulder of a ram and just wave it over your head, we should just get back into that because he's clearly, <coughs> clearly he enjoys that, you know, or, or he really likes it when you, he likes the lobe of the liver and he likes to smell that thing burnt. And no, that's just ridiculous. I mean, no one, no one thinks that way, but at the same time, then what was it that he liked? What was it that, that, that gave these things relevance? Why did he command them? Only one thing. One single thing. It was the measure to which those things lifted up to him something that was a picture of his son. That's it. Now, that's true of the singing in the Old Testament too. Because we think today that God just likes pretty melodies. With harmony, four-part hymns, and and but you know what? Pretty melodies can come from anywhere. If God just wanted a pretty melody, I think He could just listen to any or something. The, the 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 issue isn't the song itself. The issue is that that song sung by those Levites with the words of the Psalms that came from the Spirit of God describing Christ was just one more aspect of Christ rising up to his father under the old covenant. You see, so when they were singing songs that the words of which were spirit-given descriptions of Christ, it was it was it was just a, it was very much like the 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 smell of the uh, of the burnt offering on the altar. It just or or the incense, you know, or the wave offering. These were all things that represented Christ to His Father. And so you can't just you can't just grab the song, drag it through. And again, I'm not against that. We do a couple songs here every 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 morning, but but for a, but we don't think it's worship. We don't call the singing itself worship. Worship can happen in us while we're singing, but it's not the singing that's worship. Okay? Um, I, mean, I mean, the song isn't what God's looking for. He's looking for a very particular fragrance in your soul. He's looking for a very particular, a very specific increase happening in you that, that, that should be a reality with or without singing going on. Getting back to the, the the singing, you can't just you can't just look back in the Old Testament and say, "Hey, look, they sang. We should sing." Singing was part of worship for them. Singing should be part of worship for us. If you're going to think that way, then you've got to bring it all over. <laughs> you know, if that's going to be your understanding of how Scripture works and how the New Covenant works, you better start finding a, a red heifer. 
and, and, and because that's that's a necessity. And and bring it all over. So singing was absolutely a part of worship, but why? What defined it? What gave it the definition? Or what what made it worship? Christ made it worship. The fact that it was a representation of Christ made it. It's like the same thing we talked about then one week, I can't remember, if I gave you a picture of someone you didn't know and said, check this out, isn't that a great picture? It would be pretty meaningless to you if it was just a random guy off the street. You'd probably just look for the closest trash can. If it was your, if it was a great picture of your new wife or a great picture of your beloved son or daughter or son. you look at that thing and you say oh, man, that is precious what makes it precious does the paper make it precious does the ink make it precious only the measure to which that thing bears the image of something you actually love you see and if you try to just say look Jason likes pictures any pictures will do just give him a picture. And you got brought me a picture of a, of a, of a dead toad or a, a roadkill cat or something. Look, he likes this. He likes all this stuff. Just any kind of picture. But my point is that the, if you're looking at the, 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 the old covenant and what it was doing, it was handing the father pictures of his son. You see, it was just really good. And, and not one picture could ever get the job done. So he created a whole bunch of pictures. Some of them were very violent pictures because there was a very violent death and judgment coming in Christ. Some of them were very pleasant smelling pictures of Christ because that's also part of him. Some of them were, were I mean, there's so many different pictures of Christ. And, and if you just look at Israel just kind of handing God photographs of Jesus Christ and him looking at that, oh, that's a good one. Uh, that's a good. And then, and then, as they go on through Israel's history, they start changing those photographs and start giving him pictures of roadkill cats. And he's like, "I hate your burnt offerings and your new moon celebrate. I hate this stuff. Why? It lost the image. It lost the image of what it was supposed to testify. Now, in the new covenant, it's not a matter of an image anymore. It's the actual person. Now, God, I mean, he was waiting for the time where he could take that entire stack of good pictures of Christ, put it away, and just have the actual person of Christ now offered the fragrance of the living Christ, now becoming the substance of worship in us. Now that, that, that should really, I think that should really strike us as an amazing opportunity. To, to worship God and, and and listen to what Jesus says again now. God is actually seeking. Just the thought that God's looking for anything is pretty pretty mind blowing. But the the, the thing that he's he's looking for now worshippers who worship in spirit and truth. That that should just really if, if we see that with a little bit of light in our hearts that should really just hit us. As as a pretty amazing thing, I, I guess. Um, I guess I'm gonna. I'm we're out of time, and I want to leave at least a few minutes for if there are any comments or questions. So I'll stop with that. Uh, see if anyone has anything on online or here.